Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Mimi Matthews has enjoyed best-selling success in Victorian fiction and non-fiction, with romances that ask thoughtful social questions as well as entertain, and also her playful animal tales, like The Pug That Bit Napoleon, a not-so-romantic interaction that took place on his wedding night, and is one of dozens of amusing animal stories from the 18th and 19th century. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Mimi talks about her latest book, Gentleman Jim, a rollicking romantic regency and tells what it was like to get her first publishing deal when she was still just a relatively young teenager. To help celebrate the ending of what has been a pretty hard year for many of us, Mimi's Christmas novella, A Holiday by Gaslight, will be one of four books featured in our 12 Days of Christmas giveaway starting this week. Yes, over the next four weeks, you'll have a chance every week to win one of three holiday reading book bundles made up of two historical and two contemporary Christmas stories. That's right, every week we'll be giving away 12 Christmas books as our gift to you in our 12 Days of Christmas giveaway. Enter on the joysofbingereading.com website or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. Details on the podcast show notes. But now, here's Mimi. Hello there, Mimi, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Look, beginning at the beginning, it's a very predictable question with the show now because it's one I ask every one of our guests, but I think people always want to know the answer to this question. Was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you just had to write fiction? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? I would have to say just always being when I was little, really creative and thinking up like some little kids when they play with their toys or their dolls and thinking up stories and little scenes for them to act out. And my mom encouraged me to to write it down once I was able to actually be writing. Um, So this would have been in elementary school. And I just kept doing it. No one ever told me, you can't do that. You're not old enough. You don't know enough. So I felt really comfortable just writing out my ideas and little bits of dialogue. And eventually, by the time I was 13, I had written a book. I mean, it's not a masterpiece, but (laughs) it was good enough that I was able to send it out on submission. And then when I was 18, I got an agent. So I think a lot of it had to do with just being young and a little bit of a dreamer and no one ever saying, you know, that you can't you can't write these down. You can't make stories. So I just did. And it ended up, it just ended up becoming books. Amazing. Uh, Quite remarkable that at such a young age, you were able to, to do that, isn't it? You know, I never even realized it when I was doing it because I had just always been doing it. 
And, you know, it was nothing really highbrow or technical. I didn't have a ton of skill at plotting things out or character development or pacing. I didn't know anything about those things, but I really enjoyed doing it. And I was really shy and it gave me a way to express myself and it was very immersive. So it was almost, it was almost like reading a book, you know, the way you get immersed when you're reading, but I was able to create the stories myself. So it definitely filled a need for me when I was little, I think. Now, you've become a best-selling writer of Victorian fiction and non-fiction, and you've got you've had lots of books out now, and we will refer to some of the ones that you've previously published, but the latest one out this month is a standalone Victorian romance called Gentleman Jim. And at the heart of this story, there's a hidden identity story about a stable boy who is not what he seems, and we won't tell the readers, the listeners, anything more than that because we don't want to spoil the story for them. But this hidden identity thing, it's quite a um, common trope in Victorian literature, but you've made it into a really interesting story. Is that part of the attraction for you to have those secret family secrets? You know, for for Gentleman Jim, it's actually set right at, at the end of the Regency, which I feel like was a little bit more of a the novels of that era were a little bit more adventurous or novels set in that time period, sort of the Georgian era before it became more constrained in the Victorian era. Oh, I and, see. Yes. And so I feel like it, allow, it just allowed to be, I don't want to say it allowed to be a, a little crazier, but just more exciting things to happen like an adventure and hidden identities and duels and things that I normally would not, put in one of my other romances because they're a little bit more, I would think a little bit quieter, maybe a little more thoughtful. And Gentleman Jim was something I started, gosh, really early when I came back to writing. So around 2013, 2014. And after the first 30,000 words, I set it aside because I had another project that that I did instead. And I came back to it a lot. I I worked on it a lot during uh, the pandemic, the beginning of the quarantine. And I think just the feeling of being so stifled and indoors and everything so quiet inspired me to write something that was a little bit more really adventurous (laughs) than I would normally do, just because it filled a need to, um, you know, just to explore something a lot more exciting. And the time period really allowed for it, especially it being. I was inspired by novels that, that sort of had similar themes like The Count of Monte Cristo and The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling, which is an earlier novel, but had sort of similar ideas of hidden identities. You don't really know somebody who someone was or their full story and the way things come about and justice is finally done. So I really enjoyed writing it. Sure, you mentioned that word justice and there is a, a revenge element in that story too, quite a potent part in that story on more than for more than one character is intent on some sort of revenge and it seems to me that a number of your books that the idea of getting justice whether it's by legal or illegal (laughs) means is quite important would you say that's right I think so I really love to see if somebody has done something wrong and I mean like a, a serious wrong for them to get their comeuppance and unfortunately in real life That probably doesn't happen as often as we would like, where bad people have to pay a price for being bad or being evil. 
And so fiction really feels fills a need, especially lately, I find I'm reading a lot of mysteries and things where at the end, you know, the bad person is arrested and goes to jail because it just feels like right now, um, seeing bad people get justice is really satisfying. Yes. We might expand that into what's been happening in America right now. <laughs> yeah, probably not a good idea. <laughs> so keeping ourselves to the Victorian period, most of your work has been in the Victorians. Is that right? I just wondered what attraction there was for you in that particular period. It, ha- it has, I believe. So Gentleman Jim is my 10th uh, novel. and of all those 10, only two of them were Regency. All the rest are Victorian. Okay, yes. And that's, I'm mainly drawn to it because it's a period where there was a lot of change happening, not just in the world with science and invention and women's rights and animal welfare. People were becoming more sensitive to the plight of animals. Um, Just a greater understanding of the world. And as you see also the social mobility, you know, people who were working class and maybe able to make more money and able to sort of ascend sort of, you know, to another class, which is very interesting to me. And I feel like in some ways, to a degree, it's really relatable because we live in a world now where there's a lot of change all the time, you know, new inventions, new technologies, just the changing things in how we deal with the world, how we see the world. And it can be unsettling to some people. And So exploring those characters, how they adapt to change, you know, whether they embrace it or whether they become very rigid and unwilling to change, that's something I find really interesting. Yes, look, and also in in our time of Me Too, I think that we've all become much more aware of what women in that period, how they were almost powerless to deal with men around them if those men had ill intentions towards them. Right, right. I'm thinking of the the one before Gentleman Jim was called Fair as a Star. And your heroine, Beryl, looks like she's got the perfect life, betrothed to a wealthy Sir Henry, but it isn't as wonderful as it looks. And a lot of your women, marriage is really the only career path, in quotes, that they have, especially for women of class. And you, you introduce a lot of interesting questioning in a quiet sort of way around that idea, or even if it's just sympathetically treated, that this is about the only option they have. So they have to, they're forced into seeing it really as a business decision, a lot of them, aren't they? Right, right. As almost a way of securing their future. You know, where am I going to be able to be taken care of, safe, provided for? I can grow old and not have to worry about, am I going to end up on the street? You know, if I can't be a servant or you know, have a career. I think for, for women, you're right, of a certain class, marriage, marriage was the most acceptable thing for them to do, especially in the 60s, the 1860s, which is usually when I set my novels. It's sort of on the cusp of more things happening. You know, a, a few decades later, it, the suffragettes and, you know, women really pushing for more equal rights. But I like to write in the era that's like right before that happens when women are beginning to feel really feel the sting of the inequality of, you know, this isn't fair. I, this isn't what I want. I don't want to settle for this. I'm unhappy. And in Beryl's case, I, I wanted to have a character dealing with what is technically clinical depression, you know, more of a, 
it is a physical thing, not just a state of mind for her, which is how some of the people want her to deal with it. You know, why can't you just be happy? Why can't you just be positive or get your mind off things? Because that women's issues, you know, almost on any level were so misunderstood back then. And I thought how wonderful it would be to have a hero who actually listened to her and understood her and accepted her, the dark parts and the light parts. So that's sort of what I was trying to do with Fair as a Star. And I think I, I think I did it. <laughs> but, you know, you never know. It depends on which reader's reading it, I guess. Yeah, and one of your books in the Orphans of Devon series, you've got this series of four books, I think there were, of young women who have fallen on hard times because of their family circumstances, and they're all desperately seeking to secure their futures. And in one of those books, the woman is threatened with being put into a mental asylum because she isn't being um, cooperative in the way that the men would like her to. And I gather that that was quite an industry, you know, a scandal in some of those mid-Victorian years that they used mental health as a control mechanism. Yeah, that period in the 50s and 60s, there were private asylums and it, it was used more as a, you know, it could be used as a mechanism to put somebody difficult away if you had enough money, you know, somebody who was genuinely ill or somebody who just was difficult in some way or inconvenient. And that's actually explored really well in Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White, which I don't know the exact publication date. It's, it's from the 50s. It was set not very much earlier than I set the matrimonial advertisement, but just the fear of that, knowing that, that you were powerless in that way, that if you had, you know, a relation who, who could attest to you being um, unstable in some way, or I think in the case when I was researching the matrimonial advertisement, one of the things I read was that it would only take two doctors attesting to it. That was enough, just two doctors. So if your relation just hired two people who would write something out, I mean, it, it didn't take very much because a woman a lot of times was in the power of male relations or her husband. So it could be really scary. And certainly that's a part of some Gothic novels that give it an extra creepy feeling. Yeah, and I guess things like postnatal depression or even just what they called melancholia, which was really just a form of depression, I guess, you could just be put in those places for that kind of thing. It didn't have to be that you were acting all crazy or hearing voices in your head. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. In uh, the matrimonial advertisement, the heroine, Helena, her mother actually was put into an asylum for that very reason, that she had postpartum depression that was very severe and it wasn't understood. And so she was put away and ended up dying where she had been put. So it's like, has become a great fear of the heroine, you know, when she's threatened with the same thing happened to her. There's a reason she is so incredibly afraid of it happening, but yeah. yeah. And also there's, I find it quite fun that I, I don't know enough about the Victorian era myself, but you, we have things like, you know, glass windows and the pouring of, warm water and bathrooms and things. That's all coming in in that period too, isn't it? Well, right. It, you know, it depended on the house and how much money people had. They, many of them still didn't have indoor plumbing. Some places, if the person was wealthy enough to afford it, could have running water in the bathroom or could have a sort of water closet. 
so they wouldn't have to use chamber pots. But it there were still a lot of places that were, I mean, everything very basic, you know, having to heat the water in cans if you wanted to take a bath, that sort of thing. So mm. yeah, it, it's it's interesting, interesting dichotomy that there was so much that was still like that at the same time, so much change was happening. And it would take a while. I mean, it, I remember reading something, it must have been an autobiography, um, Agatha Christie's autobiography, and she was talking about, you know, in the early 1900s when they got their first water closet in their house, like what a momentous event it was to finally have a bathroom. So it still took a long time, you know, from the 50s and 60s before some of the the things that we enjoy, you know, became commonplace. Yeah, yeah. Turning to your nonfiction, you've got a, a, a lovely little book with a fantastic title about animals in the 18th and 19th century, and it's called The Pug Who Bit Napoleon. And, and there really was, I gather, a little pug who bit Napoleon and didn't just bite him any day of the week, but on his wedding night. Can you tell us about that book? Well, that's that book arose because when I was first starting out, I had a book out on submission and my agent encouraged me to start a blog and I didn't know what I was going to blog about, but I wrote a lot about Victorian history. And then once a week I did a history of animals post with stories like these that I had found researching. And a lot of them are, are really funny. I, at least I thought they were really funny, but, um, I had been doing that for maybe a year and pen and sword books in England approached me and asked if I might be interested in writing a few nonfiction books for them. And they asked, you know, do you have any ideas? And the first thing I thought of, of course, was a collection of animal history stories. So that ended up being the pug. It was a collection of some news stories and some that I had written like a briefer version of on my author blog when I was, when I was starting out. And, and there were quirky tales, not just of dogs, but of cats and other animals as well. You've got chapters on Prince Albert's favourite greyhound and a dog that the poet Byron had. Have you got a favourite amongst all those stories? There's lots of stories there. Yes. You know, I, I like almost all of them. I felt, I felt most moved by the story of Prince Albert's greyhound, Eos, because of something he says. After Eos died, he wrote about her death, and he said that she'd been his companion from the age of 14 to 25 and had therefore been a symbol of the best and fairest section of his life. You know, I don't know if you're an animal lover, but I've had those pets that are with you through, you know, for me, it's been college, law school, various things that happen. And when they die, you really feel it, that they've been on the journey with you so long. And um, I ended up dedicating Pug Who Bit Napoleon to my dog, John, who he had actually been my dog when I moved out of my parents' house and when I bought my first place and went to college and law school and up until I took the bar and he passed away after I took the bar exam. And I felt that's what he was, a symbol of the best and fairest section of my life. So that I find incredibly moving thinking about Eos, the greyhound. Yes, you say on the back cover of that book that you have now still got quite a collection of a menagerie at home yourself. So it's obvious you are an animal lover yourself. A huge animal lover. I would have more animals 
if I had a little farm, which is my lifelong dream, I don't think it's probably ever going to happen. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard work to have a little farm, but yeah. I would have many more animals. <laughs> Do you? I see you've got an Andalusian dressage horse. Do you still take part in dressage? I don't ride because I, I have a neck injury. So not long after I had my first neck surgery, I was able to ride again. But then when the fusion, my disfusion in my neck broke, I couldn't ride anymore. And so my, he's with my trainer, an amazing dressage rider. She has the USDF gold medal. And she had one of the assistant trainers compete him for me for a while. And it got up to a point and I finally thought, why am I still making him do this? <laughs> because I think he did like the work, but you know, he's getting older and I think he was just ready to retire. So I retired him and um, he retired. I want to say it was maybe about three years ago, but he's just enjoying life now, not having to work hard, just getting fed a lot of carrots and hanging around. (laughs) (laughs) Now, because we're approaching the festive season, I wanted to also talk to you about, you've got a Victorian Christmas novella, which people might be interested in looking up called A Holiday by Gaslight. And I think those themes that we've talked about in your other books, Marriage as a Pathway in Life and Big Social Change, I think they both feature in that book, don't they? You managed to get in Charles Darwin, Prince Albert, and the invention of gaslight into the story. (laughs) You know what was funny about, about that particular story is I had intended to have Charles Darwin in it and the and gaslight being fitted out in a country home. And I didn't realize until I was already a chunk of the way into it that, oh my gosh, the year that it's set in is the year that Prince Albert died. The Christmas that he died, he died in December of 1861, and my book is set Christmas of 1861. So there was no way that a family like that would have gathered and not mentioned that Prince Albert had just died. So I wove that into the story too, but that was a lot of fun to write. And I love... I just love Christmas and Victorian Christmas and writing about all the things they got to do, the decorations and things. That was a lot of fun. So is that the only Christmas one you've done? It is. I, you know, I always mean to have more Christmas books come out. And the problem is I am horrible at budgeting my time. It seems like I'm always working on other books. Like I have deadlines for other books And by the time Christmas comes around, you know, other people are putting out their Christmas romances in like September, October, and I have nothing. (laughs) So I just need to, I aspire to become better at managing my writing time, but it, it's difficult because a lot of, a lot of it depends on with having a neck injury. If I have a pain level one day, I may not be able to write at all. So I never can just be like, okay, I'm going to write every day this many words for this many months and turn out this many books because it, it just varies depending on, you know, what's happening physically, which is unfortunate, but I feel lucky to write it all. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, turning away from the specific books and just looking at your wider career, you have mentioned about going to law school and I, I think you have quite a very strong academic background. Can you tell us a bit about your life before you became a full-time writer? And and how did you kind of move back into full-time writing from being involved in law? Well, I, I did write, not fiction, but I did write in college and law school, tons of papers and tons of really big research projects. And sometimes I was able to incorporate 
the Victorian era into it. When I was in law school, I did a really huge paper, or it seemed huge at the time. It was like 30 or 40 pages on the British courts of chancery under the supervision of Jeffrey Hazard, who's like a really famous, he was a very famous law professor here. And so I feel like I've been researching to write about Victorian stuff for many, many years, (laughs) even if I didn't know I was going to put it into novels. And then, you know, after my injury, there was a period of time where I couldn't work or, you know, do anything law related for the same reason. Initially, it was just too close to having the repair surgery they did on my neck after it broke. But eventually it was too hard to predict, you know, what days would be good days and what days would be bad days. And so I sort of fell back into writing, which was something I could do, you know, sort of whenever, any time of day, just when I felt up to it, some days I could do more, some some days I could do less. And so it was a a natural progression. And then when my book started doing so well, which was around, I guess, 2018, it, it just ended up, I could justify just doing that and not have to worry about going back to anything related to the law. And I, you know, I think writing novels incorporates the things that I loved actually the most about the law, which was the research and writing. The legal profession is a very writing heavy profession. And this way I get to do the things that I love most while still having a career that accommodates my limitations because of my injury. So it's sort of the best of, of both worlds. Yeah. Look, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you'd credit as the secret of your success? You know, I was thinking about this. I don't know if it's resulted in my success, but I always just write what I want to write, the things that interest me. And I have been lucky in most cases that it interests other people too. I don't think you can stick with something if you don't love doing it. And so I just feel like writing what I love has, has been something that, you know, who knows if I would have stuck with it, even, even if books had been selling well. I think if I didn't enjoy the writing process and the stories I was telling and the research I was doing, I'm not sure I would have stuck with it just because you, you just have to love it, I feel like. It's a solitary profession. You know, you're alone, just you and your manuscript. And I, I feel like you really do have to love what you're doing. Sure. And is there any best and worst advice for new writers starting out, regardless of their age, but people who aren't so experienced at writing, that you would think would be good to pass on? Were you, what were your own expectations when you started out? And, and did you find that you met them or were you rather sort of bemused at the beginning about how things were going? There were, there were many times at the beginning, I was agented, so I did have somebody I could ask, but my agent was not a writer. And there were many times that I sort of lamented that I didn't have a a sort of mentor, you know, that I could say, am I doing this right? Not even, I don't mean even the writing part, but all the things the writers expected to do nowadays, like social media or when a book goes on sale and how you promote it, just basic stuff, which it's not very intuitive. You just don't really know what to do. So I had wished I had a mentor. So, I, I mean, I feel like for that reason, if you can join a club to be around other writers and, and learn about things like that, that that would be good. But as far as the writing itself, I, I would hesitate to give other writers advice except to say, be really hesitant to take advice from people about writing because it is a very personal thing and it's your own voice and 
you know, there always is something to learn, but if somebody tells you, you have to do this, you have to take this class, you have to have a, you know, MFA in order to write. I don't think any of that's necessarily true. And I think for some writers starting out who are a little bit more uncertain, if somebody set up those barriers, they might decide, well, I don't, I don't have that. I can't do that. So I'm just not going to write it at all. And I don't think that they should be discouraged because it is very personal and it's your own voice and your own stories. And I think the best way to become a better writer is just to keep writing. Yeah. Look, turning to Mimi as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and we like to try and recommend books to people that might be new discoveries for them, that they're going to feel, oh, this is just something I can't put down. What are you reading at the moment, and who do you like to binge read? So right now, I've been turning back to a lot of comfort reads, and I think it's just as a result of the pandemic And other friends I've talked to have been doing this too, sort of rereading something that you've already read just to give you comfort. And for that, I read a lot of Georgette Heyer's Regencies. I find her, she's entertaining, she's witty, her books are so much fun, but she's great to just read one right after the other. The other one who's great for that is Agatha Christie. I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I have all of her books in hardback (laughs) and I have read them all multiple times. Yeah, I love Agatha Christie. And M.C. Beaton, who recently passed away, I, I think it was at the beginning of 2020. It might have been in 2019. But her book, she writes detective stories. She has the Hamish Macbeth mysteries and then the Agatha Raisin mysteries. So same detectives in each book, sort of a standalone mystery. Those are just amazing. Great. I mean, they're murder mysteries, but they're great comfort reads. You know, small villages or the Hamish Macbeths are, are set in Scotland. I wish I could say I've been reading more romance lately. I, I recently read um, an advanced copy of a book by Harper St. George. And then the other one I read, let me see it. I'm trying to think of what the title is. The Heiress Gets a Duke. I thought that was really good, but it's not going to be out for a while, not until January. And the other one I read was Light at Wincliffe by Sarah Ladd. She writes sort of sweet regencies but they're not they're not trite sweet you know there's meat to them and just beautiful setting like in Cornwall with the mist almost a gothic sort of feel I really enjoyed that but yeah those are sort of what I've been leaning toward lately a lot of mysteries a lot of comfort reads and some some romances Yeah, I've heard quite a few people say exactly the same thing about that comfort read thing. You, there's definitely a trend there. People just want to give themselves a little bit of a, a release somewhere or other, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. No, it's been really great just revisiting a favorite books. And you know, when enough time has passed and you do a reread, you notice things that you didn't notice the first time. So it's always there's always something new about it to enjoy. Yes. Yes. We are coming to the end of our time together. So circling around, looking back down the tunnel of time, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Hmm. You know, I've thought of this, what I would do differently. And sometimes I do think, I do wonder if I had kept writing after I got my first agent, from, you know, when I was young, I was 18. If I had kept writing then, like, I think, oh my gosh, what what a career I would have now. 
But I have a feeling being so young that it might've just fizzled out or maybe I just wasn't ready, you know, to commit to it or I don't know. So I, yeah, I'm not sure, but I often wish that I had stuck with it when I was younger and that it hadn't taken me so long to, to come back to writing fiction Um, just Mm -hmm. because there's so many years, you know, in between that I wasn't writing. And I just think, Oh, if only I'd, kept at it. If only I'd, I'd have so many books now, but you know, you just never know. And I, I feel like so much in writing and probably, you know what, in anything is just timing. And sometimes things just happen at the right time. And yeah. yeah. And so, you know, coming back to it older, yes, I'm older now and maybe don't have as much energy and am injured and all these other things. But I think the timing was right for it. I just feel more invested in it. I enjoy it more and I found people who enjoy reading it. So yeah, I don't know. That's probably a non-answer. No, no, it's, it's, I've heard other writers say similar things, but then they console themselves by saying, but I've had more life experience now. So I've got more experience to put into those books too. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah. I agree with that. Hmm. So what is next for Mimi, the writer? We've looked backwards. When we look forwards over, the, say, the next 12 months, what, what projects have you got underway that you want to see finished in the next 12 months, if you can? I just signed in September a three-book deal with the Berkeley imprint at Penguin Random House for a new Great. Victorian series. So that's really exciting. And I'm the first book is due to them January 1. So I'm working really crazily on trying to finish it. It's loosely connected to my Parish Orphan series. The hero of the new book, it's called The Siren of Sussex, is the half-Indian habit maker. His name is Ahmed Malik, who was in my Parish Orphan series as sort of a side character. He's, he's become the hero. And I always knew he was going to be the hero. I sort of, I wouldn't have made him making dresses if I didn't intend, <laughs> eventually intend for him to be a, a fashion designing star of his own book. But um, the heroine of the the first book of the new series is an equestrian, a really skilled equestrian who comes to London to find a husband. And she meets Ahmed when he makes her habit, a really dashing, fashionable uh, habit that catches everyone's eye. So I, I feel super excited about it and also very stressed that it's going to be good enough. But that's going to keep me occupied. I have that book and then the next one due to them and then the next one every sort of every six months. So I'll be busy with those for a while, which is a little daunting, but I'm excited about it. I think, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. Amy, where can readers and listeners find you online? Do you like to interact with your audience? I do. I, I'm mostly on Twitter. I check Twitter most days and I don't know if I should give my address. It's Mimi Matthews Esquire. It's just ESQ at the end because it was shorter than author. And then I'm on Facebook. And I think that that's just Mimi Matthews author, my author page. But yeah, I I always respond to readers. Sometimes lately, some of the emails I've been getting, it's taking me a little bit longer to respond just because I've been overwhelmed with deadlines. But I respond to everybody. Unless they send me something really angry and unkind, in which case I don't respond at all. (laughs) 
Property wise. Yeah. <laughs> now that's lovely. And we will put links. We publish show notes with every one of these episodes and we put links in the show notes in case people do want to follow up to make it easy for them to find you. So we're very happy to do that. Oh, well, Look, it's been fantastic talking. And I think that these new books you're doing for Berkeley sound like they're going to be great. Thanks so much, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you, my dear. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.